It's movie time, and welcome to uh, our new season two, uh, episode two. How are you all doing? I hope that you're doing absolutely amazing and that you loved uh, episode one. And we are back again for another Monday, at this time with a wonderful guest, Mr. Mark Jacobson, as well as my ho my co-host and wonderful, wonderful uh, dude who's like multi-talented, Kintig. Hey, How you doing? I'm doing good. Uh um, you know, I'm in Los Angeles and I'm burning up here. It's really hot, but you know what? Uh, I think I'm a, I'm gonna be okay. Uh, it, it's not as bad as uh, it was yesterday, so I don't know. I'll hang in there. Yeah, it's like it was a nice scorcher yesterday, 95 here. Yeah, I see. It, it's like been humid here, which is uh, you know, it's not usually not that that humid here in Los Angeles, but it's been ridiculous this year so you know i guess i yep. i just gotta maintain you know absolutely and live in uh, new york mark uh, how are you doing mark jacobson he uh, life in new york is pretty good it's pretty hot and humid here too but we don't mind i can tell you it's dark here it's not dark in la yet <laughs> yeah no it's not dark yet in la but uh man <laughs> We're getting there. We're getting there to, uh, to the dark. And also, uh, it's like as well, Mark is uh, not only a, uh, a lawyer, he's produced, he is represented, he is an all-around amazing, amazing person. So, can you also tell us a little bit of, uh, more about your background, Mark? Yeah, um, let's see. <clears throat> I went to NYU Law School. I graduated in 1977. Um, I'm the founding chairman of the New York State Bar Association section on entertainment arts and sports law. We have about 1,700 members. Um, I taught entertainment law at a number of law schools and non-law schools. Uh, I testified before Congress on the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. I actually spent a lot of time writing it. I was the general counsel at Prodigy, the old online service. I testified at WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, about the digital rights treaties. I've gotten credits as an executive producer on a number of movies. I'm involved in producing a children's show this Christmas, I hope. Uh, it's a little musical based on an English pantomime. Uh, I was a business manager for a long time for well-to-do artists. I had a personal management company for a while. I had a music publishing company for a while and I got two great kids and a wonderful wife but otherwise uh, that's about it <clears throat> very cool and uh, it's like you also now also work a lot with the corporate sector as well as in the art still so do they have like a lot uh, in common or are there like some challenges that you face well, lots of challenges. The corporate sector, I'm not really sure what you mean by the corporate sector. I mean, corporations get behind many, many arts projects, and they do yes. it uh, so that they can make money. So their goals are pretty clear. The artist's goals are often very different from what the, the corporate guy wants. But everybody, in the end, wants to be successful. Artists want to be successful in a way that's very different from the way companies want to be successful. Companies are linear. They just want money. Artists need to express themselves in a way that makes sense to them and make money can can you do both uh, this day and age can you um can you exercise what you need to as an artist and also make money or do you have to sacrifice a little bit 
Well, certainly you can, um, how do I say this? One can say exactly what one wants when making a film or play. Uh, the Internet has made it possible for the world to hear what you have to say. The challenge is whether or not you make money at it. And that challenge is typically met by reducing your costs of production so that wide-scale people can see it all over the world at relatively modest cost. Uh, if you still want to make a $100 million motion picture, you're going to have to go the traditional route. But if you can, if you can do a movie that costs you far less money, let's just pick a number, $75,000, it's quite possible that that picture can make money inside of two years. Okay. Also, too, I, I want to I let people know that if you guys want to participate in this conversation, you can do so by dialing our number 323-522-4601. Once again, that number is 323-522-4601. Yeah, and uh, please feel free to call in also. And I know that you were talking about also the fa uh, with copyright as well as the uh, DMCA takedowns. <laughs> Yeah, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, yeah. yes, notice the takedowns. Yeah. When I was the general counsel of Prodigy, it was very important to us to not have liability for creating the opportunity for one of you to send the other one a poem uh, over the uh, Internet. If you had a Maya Angelou poem that you liked and you wanted to send it to someone else, under the copyright law, the way it was written back in 1995, provided that the people who carry that, that poem on their... Um, on their pipes, the telephone companies or the internet companies or eventually the broadband companies would be liable for copyright infringement just as you would for having sent the poem. So we had to change that, and that's what the Digital Millennium Copyright Act did, and that's what the notice and takedown provision took care of, and it worked mostly, um, except we got into this whack-a-mole thing, which we knew was going to come, and uh, it just it hasn't worked as well as we thought it would. What can I say? Well, it's an ever-evolving uh, thing that it does happen but with that because it's like those are one of the fascinating parts that do go forward with it. Also, it's like in terms uh, of it, it's like uh, is it now starting to open where people cannot just absolutely put on people's personal information as well? Like because there are there are certain uh, companies um, that can't go into eh, it's like they basically broadcast personal information such as social security numbers etc cetera, etc cetera, on sites and sell it to third parties and they feel that they're exempt from this law exempt from what law I'm the fair. digital millennium Copyright yes well I would say to you that the DMCA doesn't apply to someone's social security number because there's no copyright in the social security number. The challenge is if someone puts something up on a website, a copyrighted work up on a website and they don't own the rights to it, they are subject to notice and takedown. Provided they follow statutory schemes and they're somewhat complex, you have to register the site, you have to register as an agent, you have to comply with the law and that gives you what we call the safe harbor. Uh, if a third party posts stuff on your site. We had problems back at Prodigy where we had something called personal web pages, um, which is the precursor to Facebook and the precursor to lots of things. But um, basically, you, everyone who had a Prodigy account could put up a personal web page and put whatever you wanted on there. And the way we monitored it without getting in trouble was to basically wait for one of the sites to get a lot of hits. 
And when they got a lot of hits, mm -hmm. we would take a look at the site. Once we took a look at the site with all those hits, 99 times out of 100, it was a porn site, so we would just take it down. Yeah, which makes absolute sense. And it, because it's like there, uh, there is a lot that does go on with that. And also, I was just also wondering on uh, moving also with that as well. Um, is it starting to become harder to enforce or easier to enforce because of fair use laws? What's that? The digital yes. copyright? Well, it's just it's Google gets a million takedown notices a day or a week or some ridiculous amount of like that. So. It's very difficult to enforce. The obligation falls on the copyright proprietor to enforce it. Um, but there are, but YouTube, for example, actually encourages infringement. And I think the case called Viacom versus YouTube came out wrong. Um, YouTube was founded on the concept that they encouraged people to upload infringing movies, and then they would categorize them and make sure they were in the right place, and then they claimed the ignorance of the fact that there were infringing movies on the site and the court bought it but it didn't make any sense to me is it harder wow. to enforce it's uh... It is, it's very hard to enforce because there are multiple websites going up every day it's very very difficult So, i know that also with california that they recently or soon are going to be making a law that lawyers can't negotiate as agents and managers is this going to start to become I think for New York and other states that will follow that challenge as well, because it's, it's like it also takes away the the manager's ability to have that negotiation on the client's behest. They have to have like an agent's license. Is that going to go also for places like New York and other states as well? Well, it so happens that what you're talking about is a case called Solis versus Blankard, um, mm -hmm. and there a fellow named Solis was a sportscaster and his lawyer Blankhart um, signed a retainer agreement with him where um, Blankhart said he would go help him find work and when he got the work he would negotiate the deal. So Blankhart got him a gig as a um, sportscaster and they negotiated the first contract and it expired and they renewed it and everything was going fine and dandy then they renewed it for the second time so it was the third set of, of deals and Solis said, hey, you're working as an agent without a license. I don't want to pay you anymore. So he made a complaint to the labor commissioner. And the labor commissioner looked at the facts of the case and wrote an opinion that basically said that if you negotiate on behalf of someone in the entertainment industry, you are assisting in the procurement of employment. That violates the statute. And therefore, Mr. Blankhart, you're not entitled to get paid. And you have to disgorge your profits. The case, we had a, it's interesting you asked this because in May of the, this year, we did a panel in New York on agents and managers and lawyers. There were about 10 different people from SAG and from the Department of Consumer Affairs who regulates talent agencies and things like that. And we posed the question to the Department of Consumer Affairs and said, if the facts of that case happened in New York, would the attorney be liable for acting as an agent without a license and the, she said yes it's quite possible that could happen there are many attorneys in new york that negotiate employment agreements all day long especially in the theatrical field meaning music film television uh... theater all that stuff and if that's deemed to be assisting in the procurement of employment all of the lawyers would be subject to the statute 
And the way the statute is drafted, it is virtually impossible for a lawyer to practice as a lawyer and comply with the statute. So, the, as I mentioned, I'm the founding chairman of the New York State Bar Association Section on Entertainment Law. My, I have been charged by that group with the responsibility of, a, of presenting legislation to the section executive committee who will consider it, and the legislation is intended to allow an exemption for lawyers under that act. So we're moving forward to prevent that from happening in New York. That is fantastic because it's like it must affect like how would you how do you feel about like the decision and like because it, it, it would affect the the actual industry because if a legal representative can't negotiate it's like then how do you do the paperwork for the client how do you do it it's like can you not and where you cannot also be their agent as well in that it's right well typically it, what the recommended course of action has been that you bring an agent in to negotiate the deal, but the client won't like that because then the agent takes another 10%. So it's kind of a mess. We don't know how the how everyone's going to react to this, but we are preparing the legislation, and we'll see how it goes. Have you been both on the legal representative and packaging agent sides? And has that ever affected you in a dual role? Well, I... So often I charge simply by the hour. I don't really get involved in percentage deals. It's just not how I work. There are lots of people and friends of mine who work regularly on a percentage of the artist's income, but I don't do that. So to the extent I help package films, it's all part of the hourly rate. I don't get an extra fee, and I don't package any TV shows. So that's, that's not what I do. Very cool. It's like it, so. It's worked within the fees of that time. So when representing clients, it's like: is there certain kinds of filmmakers or budget ranges that you prefer to work with? Ones that you're like, uh, no, thank you, or it's like films themselves that you would say, no, thank you. Well, I won't do porn, but I think that's pretty obvious. I think that the answer yes. for me is: so, so long as I can earn a fair fee and the picture is legitimate. I'm happy to do it. Um, I say to people at the current time, I have a short in my office that I'm working on that will run about $10,000, and I have another picture where I'm the production council, and the budget's $120 million. So anywhere between $10,000 and $100 million is within the range. It just has to be that the people have to get along with me, and I have to get along with them. We have to know what we're trying to accomplish, and we have to see meet eye to eye and there needs to be value. I need to add value for them, and they need to be able to, to pay me, which is not always so easy. Very true. It's like, but yet at the same time, smart filmmakers always set aside fees for legal counsel. Yes, but it's sometimes part of the budget. they have to do that, but sometimes what they set aside isn't enough because they expect a lot from the lawyer, or they don't know what they're doing, and they need education. It's all part of the process. I have another picture that just came in a couple of weeks ago with a from a client who I worked for once before. It's budgeted about $3 million. And I just went out with them with the two clients for about three hours the other night just to teach them everything that's going on. But they're nice people and they value it. So I, I am happy to work with them. Absolutely. It's about relationships. Absolutely. Yep. It's most uh, important. So 
was wondering, because we had uh, spoken about this at a uh, time, that can you tell me a little bit about how tax incentives are now playing into the filmmaker's method of funding, and how do you feel about those uh, in the funding model? Well, um, tax incentives, state tax incentives are insanely important in the U.S. There are about 40 states that have those incentives available, and they come in two forms. One is as a tax credit, and the other is as a rebate. New York's, for example, is a rebate where at the end of the production, they write you a check. They give you back money. So they actually pay you to write, to make a movie, which is an extraordinary thing. They don't pay you to make records, and they don't pay you to create theater, and they don't pay you to, to do lots of things in the arts, but they do pay you to make a movie. So it's important to understand that. And the other thing is a credit, and the credit is merely a, a means that you can um, reduce your tax bill to a particular state. Mm -hmm. the, challenge, the challenge is that most um, production companies who are entitled to the credit don't need the credit, so then they have a credit that they don't need, so what they do is they turn around and sell that credit, and that allows them to get that money. So if you have a million-dollar tax credit, you're likely to get between $800,000 and $850,000 for that credit. Um, and sometimes you can borrow against it, and sometimes you can't. But tax credits mm -hmm. and, and tax rebates are of the essence of film financing um, going forward. Uh, the, used to be it was all about the director. Now it's all about the tax credit. I was just uh, consulted on a film with a very substantial budget where they plan to shoot they make the do the actual the live action stuff in Georgia, um, where there's a thirty percent tax credit, and then they're going to do the post production in New York, where there also is a thirty percent tax credit, so uh, tax uh, rebate. So the picture will end up costing only seventy percent of its budgeted amount. So it's wow. a it's a pretty substantial savings. It is vitally important in New York to the economics. New York has had a very robust but limited tax rebate program for film and television for many years. They allocate about $400 million a year, the effect of which is I think they're approaching 30 regular TV shows that are produced in New York City, which has jobs for hundreds and hundreds of people as a result. So it works in New York. There are some states that do studies that say it doesn't work. Louisiana, for example, which was considered the gold standard in rebates, has recently cut back by over $70 million, the amount of money they have available. Uh, and as a result, Mississippi has increased its uh, incentive program, both of which therefore put pressure on Georgia. So uh, as as one of the governors said, a former governor of Michigan, where I did a picture uh, many years ago, where they had a 42% tax credit, um, yep. it's, a race to the, it's a race to the bottom. So uh, the more tax credit you provide, the more pictures that come in, and unless that tax credit continues for years and years and years, and an infrastructure is built around it, the states will not benefit. The reason it works in New York is it's been going on for so long that it's in completely institutionalized and it, it pays dividends almost every year. 
And it also it makes sense the way that this, their tax credit system works in a lot of ways. But are there like some pitfalls and things that we should know about tax credits and rebates? Well, sure. I mean, um, on a tax credit, you know, people think they're going to get a X dollars as a tax credit. But by the time they finish selling it and the time they get the money, it's probably about 70 cents on the dollar. So that's important to recognize. And it's a process. It takes a long time. Georgia, for example, will not pre-certify the amount of the tax credit that you get. So it's almost impossible for you to borrow against it because no one knows really how much it'll be. Um, New York, for example, is, was wise in their, um, how they set up the credit. If you form an LLC and the LLC is treated as a partnership so that the, it as a partnership does not pay taxes, the taxes are um, tax liability and uh, passes directly through to the members. So if you're going to get a rebate from the state of New York, for example, and your picture is capitalized at, say, $5 million, and you're going to get a $1 million rebate, if one of the investors in the picture happens to owe the state of New York a million dollars, the company will not get the credit. Rather, the state of New York will keep the million dollars and use it to pay off that guy's debt to the state of New York. So the whole company then suffers as a result of his, of his not failure to pay taxes before. So lawyers have developed techniques about how to avoid that. You set up subsidiary production companies, that are uh, subchapter C corporations that therefore are obligated to pay tax, but since there's no net income in the C corporation, the C corporation doesn't have any problem. The state writes a check to the C corporation. The C corporation previously signed a contract with the LLC so that the money goes directly from the C corporation to the LLC, and the members then get the money, and New York State doesn't have a set-off right. It's complicated. It takes a lawyer to figure out the right way. Absolutely. And this is why it's like I stressed like many a time. It's like absolutely you need to have a lawyer no matter what step by step through your productions because it's like the, the dangers that can happen if you don't do it right. It's like far outweigh the cost and fees of having an attorney on your actual picture itself. Are there other myths, though, as well, that people get uh, for dispelling it? Like, uh, are there any other myths that you can think of? Well, they won't. Well, the thing to remember about um, tax credits and tax rebates are you don't get the tax credit or rebate until after the picture is finished. I had a guy come in my office once who insisted that he was going to get it before the picture started so he could go make his movie and I just told him it wasn't going to happen and it took him about six months to believe me so um, that, that's basically what it is I mean after you finish the picture and you've proven you've spent the money then you get the credit or you get the rebate but not before if that's a myth that's there I don't know what other myths you might be thinking about but that's certainly one that uh, shouldn't be followed yeah, or that you can buy your tax credits out early is another one that uh, prior to the picture being finished or the, uh, with the underselling of tax credits. Well, you can sell them. 
that's exactly what you do. If you get a certification that you do do to get a million dollars when you finish the picture, and you can sell that during the course of the picture, so long as the guy's willing to take a risk that you finish the picture. Okay. So that, that's so. you can actually do that, but there's a risk there. And I always advise clients when they have a picture that's two million dollars or up that they actually buy a completion bond, which is an insurance policy that the picture gets finished on time and on budget. And if you have an insurance policy that does that, then there's no reason not to believe you're going to get you won't get the tax credit. So if you have a bond in place and you want to sell your tax credit prior to completion of the film, you can do that. And that's how a tax credit becomes part of your financing strategy. So it's important to do that. It's not quite a myth. It's just, again, it's hard to do. And you need to know the right people. You need to know the right brokers. For example, in Puerto Rico, if you do that, the film commission itself actually brokers your deal. In many other states, there are private companies that broker the credits. Let, let me ask you a question. Um, when... When people hire you, do you find that they they get you way in advance or do they get you after something has happened and they need a lawyer? Do you find what do you find generally happens? Both. Mm -hmm. And what is Sometimes what is your suggestion? They've made a mistake and they go, "Can you help me out?" Like, I mean, here's what I did. I think I need to fix this. And I come in and I help them, but most of the time they come early. Because they look to us to do more than simply write contracts and give advice. They also look to us for uh, introductions to other people like casting directors and line producers and costume designers and set designers and things like that. So what is your we do that. What is your suggestion as a, um, a newer filmmaker when he should come see you uh, when it comes to you know his project that he's trying to get off the ground or he's about to embark on at what point would be a good time for them to come see you as far as adding you to the to the uh team package as soon as possible i had a client come to me last year or the year before who was doing a picture on a sag ultra low budget and he was advised by that producer and he didn't the man was a lawyer himself but he didn't know much about making movies so the producer told them, sure, you can do an ultra-low budget picture here in Houston, and then when you want to go to Europe to film, you can go to Europe. It's not a problem. Well, of course, that's not true under the SAG ultra-low budget. You have to shoot only in the U.S. So we had to basically save the film. We got retained on a Monday. The entire cast and crew was going to Europe on a Friday, and we had to make sure that SAG let them go because SAG wasn't going to let them go um, without the right protections in place. So we had to move the picture from the ultra-low-budget picture to the basic agreement, which is the full-on agreement that all the studios signed. So it's complicated. If we got involved earlier, we might have found a way to do this that wouldn't have cost the client so much money. But clients lately have been coming very early. I had a guy contact me today saying he's moving away from doing animation and wants to do film. Could he come in and see me? And I said, sure. But after we talk, I need to get paid. So I didn't get a, I didn't, he didn't come back. And <laughs> mm -hmm. it's like, and this is, uh, this is the thing is that people do, and need to realize that it's like, yes, when you are, uh, when you're looking to take this seriously, you do need to 
it's like it, I know that they that they have that, but it's like with lawyers, yes, they do need to have that in order to be able to move forward because there are things that cost on your pocket. Well, it's not so much things that cost on our pocket; it's that my time has value, so I would like yeah. to get paid for it. Yes. And also, uh, just one more question, though, also regarding the whole tax credit system. You were telling me also that there are, like, some really bizarre caveats that go uh, from across, like, different states. It's like, what are some of the most bizarre ones you've had working with it? I'm not sure what you're talking about. Like, if uh, a state of how that they, uh, if they pay in a very, uh, like, do they, uh, like, Paying out increments—is there like any odd caveats that you've ever come across? Uh, well, sure. Sometimes in New York, for example, New York is very far behind in making its payments for tax credit. Sometimes they're actually a year behind. So if you finish a picture this year and you complete your application, it could be two or three years before you actually get the money, simply because they're behind. They've actually changed that. They've allowed accountants, a certain number of limited number of accountants, to pre-certify. Um, so that they can, uh, instead of the state pre-certifying, because they've taken that burden off them. But it's just it's just complicated and long, and you need to make sure you have the money to do it and to carry the interest on the loan, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of stuff to do. Is it just the three of us talking, or are people going to yep. call in? I uh, we'll, uh, we'll see if our callers call in. Don't forget uh, the number to be able to call in, everyone. Kinte? Yeah, that number is 323-522-4601. Once again, that's 323-522-4601. You know, what it is sometimes with the audience, they get a little shy, but, you know, call in. Yeah, it's like, don't be shy. We don't bite much. (laughs) We're hard. So, uh, also, how does a lawyer and bonding company work in tandem in order to assure that the production does run smoothly? Because with bonding companies it's like they're also protecting the investor you two are protecting the investor as well it's like can they run in in tandem or is there ever oppositions that happen uh, for clashing agendas well i mean the the filmmaker's goal should be to complete the picture on time and on budget and that's what he wants to do so that when he does that the picture's ready and the investor can see it they can start selling it and the chances of an investor actually getting the money back are improved. Um, so, so I um, what what happens is, um, um, I'm sorry, I was just distracted. Um, okay. So, so what happens is, if in fact the filmmaker and the um, and the bond company agree that the picture should be done at a certain time and in a certain budget, then it all goes through. And uh, everybody's happy. The challenge is if the if the production is supposed to be doing ten or twelve pages in a given week, and then at the end of the week they've only done four, and then it happens again the following week. The bond company comes in and says, "Why is it taking you so long to make the movie? How can we switch this? What is it that we can do to actually um, speed this production up?" And then basically they become. They may become adversarial to you in that you, the filmmaker, are not doing your job well, but they're actually coming in to make it so that you can do your job well. They don't want to go into their pocket and take over the production unless they absolutely have to. So the challenge with a bond company is the filmmaker needs to see them as 
a protector, an insurer, which is really what they are, instead of someone who's trying to take take away their um, trying to take away the film. Right. So I mean, there is a challenge. Most filmmakers hate the notion of having a bond company, but if there's any degree of sophistication, they will understand that the bond company. Um, will help them do what they what everybody wants to do. Definitely, and on the lawyer on the opposite side is also working towards their client's best interests. Has that ever then conflicted the two parties? Then, because you're working on behalf of your, uh, on behalf of your client, making sure that they're protected. And if there's a problem with the bonding company, they're working towards also as well. It, though on a protective aspect, they're working towards making sure the production gets done. It's like, is there ever a clash that happens between the two parties? Uh, all the time. Um, because the completion bond company come, may come in and say, you're really, really far behind. We're going to take over the production. But they have contracts in place at that point in time. So then it becomes the lawyer stepping in and saying, hold on a second, you know, yes, you want to come in, but however, my client has rights as well? Well, it's not so much the lawyer's not, yeah, I mean, we're going to fight with the bond company and say you can't take over the picture, but there are already contracts in place that if they fall far behind, they're entitled to take over that picture. Okay. So it's, it's not like, you know, it's not like it happens in the abstract. The insurance company, the bond company says, we will take over this picture if the following things happen and they will work with you to make sure those things don't happen. What they do is they actually look at your budget. They, they won't bond the picture if they think nobody on that production knows what they're doing. If it's a first time director, they'll be sure to have a really strong director of photography and a first AD behind them. If the line producer has never done one before, there'll be another producer there who does and they will approve the crew so that they don't get in the position where they have to take over the picture. That's the last thing they want to have happen as well, because then they have to go into their pocket. And that's why you'll have a 10% contingency fund in the budget of the picture. Absolutely, to make sure that that doesn't happen at that point in time. Also, I was wondering, there are like a lot of things that are going on, for example, in terms of funding models like crowdfunding. And the AFM last uh, two years ago also mentioned that it's slowly starting to become less acceptable to uh, as crowdfunding investors are seeking like more than just T-shirts and thank you cards and uh, thank you for and we're going to get you at a screening. Um, what like does that operate even within? Like, what are the new changes with the SEC guidelines regarding that? So that. Are they starting to become then more passive or active investors? And how does the, in the legal system, does that work with the SEC? Well, the Kickstarters and Indiegogos and Rocket Hubs are all about, uh, you buy something from the production, the production gets money, it gives you something in exchange, and then the production can use your, um, your money however it wants. Um, so you, that's when you're selling the T-shirts and the credit and a signed copy of the script and a walk-on roll, all that kind of stuff. That's fine. That, that goes so far. Some people are very successful at it. Some people are not. I think Zach Braff raised enough money to make a movie. But those were all precursors to what happened late last year, which is when uh, you were allowed to publish 
the availability of your investment material online and not have it limited to only accredited investors. So it, most of the investment goes to accredited investors, which means someone who is either, uh, either becomes accredited by virtue of the fact that they are a millionaire excluding the value of their home or a husband and wife team makes $300,000 a year and has for the last few years and then they are accredited so they can do whatever they want and the obligation to make full disclosure to them shifts away from the issuer or the company and now the investor who is now accredited is deemed to know how to make those ask those questions and how to make that investment happen so you don't have any full disclosure anymore but also under the jobs act if you are a small investor who can invest up to 10% of their net worth in a, into a particular pro production, um, you'd be allowed to do that as well. So um, that has happened lately in the last six months or so. And uh, how are you feeling that it's like when you're talking to an accredited investor that they're looking at a larger amount and then they see a group of smaller amount unaccredited investors, um, is the SEC um, making accommodations for it? Are they also feeling like then that they're protected uh, in a different so, way? Yeah, it's the, like then how does the voices ring? The law says that if you're going under this offering, it's like the type of offering escapes me at the moment, oh, it's an A-plus offering, that's what it's called, the Regulation A-plus. If you do the Regulation A-plus offering, you can have an unlimited number of investors who invest up to 10% of their net worth. And you can also have your accredited investors who can be of, of any size or amount. Um, and that's the difference. If you're only going to accredited investors, I have advised clients that they are uh, not no longer obligated to prepare an offering memorandum. You can have wealthy people invest just with uh, an operating agreement and a subscription agreement. Okay. And then do these people that are the party that without the offering agreement, do then they have a voice or uh, do they expect an no. ROI? Uh well, a voice and ROI are two different things. Um, they're all limited liability members, which means they have no voice or control over the production. That's left typically to the managing member in an LLC or the general partner in a, in a limited partnership. That's the whole purpose. Their liability is limited to that which they invest, and the um, and that's it. That's all they're liable for. Um, they don't have a voice in control. They don't have anything to say except on major events such as the dissolution of the company. Um, uh, an offering memorandum or an operating agreement that actually promises a return on investment would be a foolish thing to put out because there's absolutely no way to know whether or not a movie is going to be able to, to meet that. So um, that's, that's what you have. And you have to make sure that also with the structure through it also that it's like you're covering to make sure that you, but your accredited members though do have a say within the production or when they are following the same no. rule, they're also following no. under the same guideline. No. The only person who has influence over the production is the, is the managing member of the LLC. Whether you are accredited or unaccredited, whether you invested 10% of your net worth or 50% of your net worth, 
If the papers are done correctly, you have no influence or control over the production. The only person who has that is the managing member. Okay, so uh, then that also uh, puts uh, it in a different scope as well. So it's like it, it's no longer dealing with passive or actives in terms of investors. It's like everybody winds up then being a passive investor, so to speak. Right. That's what you want. You want passive investors. If you were talking about Section 181 under the old Act, you could be an active investor and get the benefits of that, but that law has expired, so we don't need to talk about that. Well, that's fantastic. And also with things like new media, machinima, new platforms that are coming out, like, you know, now that everything is now cross-platforming through the web, through new forms of broadcast, like web stations, broadcasting uh, through your telephone, like a lot of the barriers in the, in the industry have been broken, especially in areas like co-productions. And so like people collaborating from various countries, how does that also affect like the legal jurisdictions in regards to contracts? Like, for example, well, with Machinima, you can be a director in Canada. What is Machinima? Machinima is uh, a form of virtual, using virtual world software for real life uh, applications in terms of filmmaking. Uh, it's like it's in newer platforms. It's a form of CG. It's. Um, it's cheaper than CGI, and a lot of people are using it in this day and age to make shorter films, as well as also starting to get into features and breaking through because it's cheaper, easier to make. It's an online platform. You can work from multi locations. It doesn't require long rendering times, uh, where it, it's like it's easier to chop right away. Programs like Fraps that you can use to do within. There's different kinds of software, everything from iClone to MovieStorm to Second Life, different platforms to use to make the actual productions themselves. Well, I mean, everyone who. Some of my clients are. I have a. I'm working on a film now that's the the company that's producing it is based in Singapore. There's another company involved in it from Hong Kong. The principal investor is from China. Uh, the managing member is from Switzerland. But we've decided that all the contracts will be governed by the laws of the state of the United States, either the laws of New York or California. And the reason for that is the copyright law in the U.S. is most beneficial for movie producers as compared to any other law in the world. And the reason is this concept of work for hire. The work for hire concept doesn't exist anywhere else. So mm -hmm. all these people who are doing work on this picture using those various platforms you just ran through should be signing a contract with the production company saying whatever we do from the moment of creation will belong to the production company as a work made for hire. And that will solve the problem as to whether or not if they don't get paid or they don't get their royalties, the contract will also typically provide for a means by which uh, a lawsuit can be brought and the jurisdiction is already selected. That's the only other issue that happens. It's not all that complicated because the industry already respects the U.S. law as the most beneficial for the producer and nobody else cares. 
even is it? Uh, it's like, does it muddy the water in terms of co-production? Because if you do follow the U.S. laws, but because uh, there's a lot of international co-productions, when you're in each one of the countries, it's like a, um, you were saying, for example, one that is in Georgia, the other one is in a di- is using a different company uh, is using a different country. It's like when you're in there, then does it just carry over the con uh, like the rules that this is an American production taking place in a other country? Or no, do, you, yeah, or do you have to follow also their union rules as well? Well, we're talking about... I don't. It really depends on what you're talking about. It seems to me what you were talking about before was the creation of visual product. And the creation of Correct. visual product, typically the, the union rules aren't going to apply. If you're going to... Um, if you're going to hire SAG actors or SAG after actors, they are going to be subject to the rules, and those rules will follow them wherever they shoot. So they'll be subject to turnaround time and meal penalties and all that stuff all over the world. Um, if you're going to hire a UK actor, then you're going to have that UK actor maybe subject to SAG or maybe subject to the local rules, depending on how it's all done. It isn't that hard to figure it out. Most of the desired actors are in SAG. Most of the, the most restrictive requirements come from SAG. Um, and I think that if you file, if you follow uh, SAG rules, you end up being fine and dandy. And you don't have an issue if you're doing a French, if you don't do, if you're doing a French-American-Canadian co-production, um, it doesn't much matter again because all everyone's going to agree that the laws of the state of the United of the United States are going to apply. The copyright is going to be worked for hire. In France, you might have an issue of a drop morale, but that's usually contractually waived, and that's the end of the story. Absolutely, it makes uh, perfect sense. Let Let me uh, ask you this. Um, um, what do you what do you love the most about um, being an entertainment lawyer, and what do you what can you live without? <laughs> the second half is easier. I can live without people who promise me the moon and then never pay, um, and that happens more often than I care to talk about. But um, you know, a lot of my dates say what, that about me. What I like about it is. <laughs> You're actually creating art. You're creating things that people enjoy doing. And I find that people are wildly creative and engaging, and they're just fun to hang around with. That's mostly what it is. Mm-hmm. They're not bankers, and they're not trust and estates lawyers, and they're not litigators. They're trying to make something, create something out of nothing. And that, to me, is a very big deal. It's very hard to do. You, you know what's so funny is uh, people always say things about lawyers negatively. But when they get in trouble, they sure have no problem calling you guys. Yeah, everybody hates lawyers until they need them. <laughs> right, and then all of a sudden it's like, hey, please come save me. <laughs> so, you know, I guess that's just part of the uh, terrain there. But, um, so you know, some of the, the best people I've ever known uh, were lawyers who did very important work um, in communities and whatnot. So I definitely can understand uh, the need for for a great attorney. Um, as a, um, as someone who, um, is looking at getting into entertainment law, what, what's some advice you would give? I mean, not myself, but someone who's listening, what's some advice you would give them about, um, getting into the marketplace? 
Well, as they go to law school, my suggestion is to take classes in copyright, take classes in tax, take classes in corporate law and real estate law, because a lot of what we do in the entertainment business is very similar to what you do in corporate law and real estate law. I like to explain what a motion, what a copyright is, uh, the same way you might explain what a building is, in that you rent out floors of a building or apartments in a building, but you still own the, the overall asset in the form of the building. Well, in copyright or music, in the in the film world, you own the copyright, which is the building, but then you rent out floors and you sell licenses to Germany and to Italy and to France, and you sell medium like internet or uh, airlines or something like that, and each one of those can be considered a floor or an apartment or a, an office unit in the building. And if you take that analogy, you sort of understand why it's important to understand real estate law so that you can understand how copyright can be sliced and diced the same way. So I tell law students to take copyright, tax, and real estate, and of course as many entertainment classes as they can. Many law schools don't have them. I, they didn't have it when I went to law school. And then once you get out, I tell people that they should get experience. I generally advise people against becoming litigators mm -hmm. because if you want to do transactional entertainment law, because you learn a different set of skills as a litigator than you do as a transactional lawyer. Um, and so to do become a good entertainment lawyer, I recommend that they become a good corporate lawyer, a good real estate lawyer, or something like that, where you're negotiating deals and learning how to give and take in the course of a negotiation. Um, and then after that, I encourage them to become members of volunteer lawyers for the arts, where you can actually get clients and become uh, skilled at representing a client in the industry, whether it's a dance company trying to raise money or simply to get their 501c3 exemption or it's a music artist who feels he's been shafted by a record label or a publisher, you get to understand how it works and you feel good at it. And then I tell people to go where the clients are, which can be going to bar association meetings because sometimes lawyers are your clients when they have a conflict or they can't do some work. But mostly I say if you're interested in film, join the film organizations. If you're interested in music, join the music organizations, etc. theater, the theater organizations. So you go where the clients are and that way you'll get to know them. You put a glass of wine in one hand and you shake hands with people, you introduce yourself to people, you go to these events, you show up and you talk to them. You actually have to show up and talk. That's the difference. How much of your time would you say is studying and doing research and sharpening your tools as a, a lawyer these days? I read the trades every day. Um, I follow, there are lots of um, free subscriptions to various articles and cases that come around. I spend hours a day reading uh, what's happening and what's going on. I can't quantify it. I've been doing it for so long, it just, it's sort of like second nature. Um, so but that's, it's all part of it. You have to do that every day. Plus, at least in the three states I'm admitted, New York, California, and Florida, um, you have to take continuing legal education, like 12 credits a year. So I'm always taking classes and learning more, and I try to keep a class. I don't take classes on, um, on probate. I take classes on entertainment work and copyright work so that I'm up to date on what I do. 
So you you're in class sometimes with uh, young attorneys that are just breaking into the business. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the beginning of your question. Are you in class uh, a lot of times with young attorneys that are uh, just breaking into the business? Oh sure. Do you guys do you, teach those? Oh, do you do you have a lot of dialogue with uh, with the the young attorneys at this point in your career? Yeah, I mean, uh, once a week someone calls me up and says. Uh, I want to become an entertainment lawyer. How should I do it? So I talked to them for 15 minutes or so, and I let them know how what I did and how they could do it. Nice. Yeah, it's, and so I was also wondering in regards to that, it's like it also is a great way of finding out a lot of the information from your perspective. Like, how do you think that places like the AFM, for example, attend in benefiting uh, for that to find out this information? Like, do well, AFM is, is crawling with lawyers. I mean, there's dozens and dozens of lawyers there. Some just promoting themselves, some promoting clients' films, some representing clients. There's lots and lots of lawyers out there. Uh, I used to go every year, but eventually I realized it wasn't paying off for me, so I stopped going. Uh, when I have a film at a festival, I try to go to the film festival and participate and, and meet people and shake hands because it, it kind of helps. It makes a difference. You get a reputation. That's what happens. I'm very heavily involved with a, a festival called the Long Island Film Expo. Um, mm -hmm. um, and I've been on the board and council to that for like 20 years. Uh, this one, Just two weeks ago, I gave three classes at that festival. I, had, I was part of two panels and one I did by myself. Um, I, I, I donate money. I do their contracts. I help them out, so it's all done pro bono. And I also helped out the documentary film festival in uh, Raleigh. They had some trouble and I, some legal work they needed done, and I took care of that for them. So you have to stay involved. You have to be in a place where people can find you, and so the best place to be where they can find you is, you know, where they are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh that, so, uh, that sounds like... <laughs> They're calling you. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's email. It's just email coming in, that's all. Uh, okay. Oh, fantastic. Also, it's like I wanted to ask you uh, one final question also before we get towards uh, our wrap. Uh, Kinti, you also have a question as well? No, go ahead. Okay, so how can like uh, you as a lawyer, uh, like what are the benefits of assisting in obtain uh, on your side of obtaining the necessary elements for the package? And at what point in the time of the package should it be that we get the lawyer to finish off any? Uh, it's like can the lawyer finish off any elements for us of the package so it could be taken to a potential next step, uh, next step? Well, that, that goes really to the question of when you get involved. So um, I've been involved very early with some productions and very late with some. So when I get in early, I get to say, you know, who's your casting director, who's your line producer, who's your accountant, all those kind of things. And I make sure they get people that are well-known and able to do this stuff. Who's doing your payroll? And, you know, there are people I know that do it well and are reasonably priced, so I... I help them out and I make those introductions. If the introductions are successful, I like to get some sort of payment for that, of course, out of the completed budget of the picture. Um, 
Otherwise, uh, you know, there's a net profit participation. But the, the tip of, I'm not a typical green eye shade lawyer who sits and waits for you, the client, to call me up and say, I need a contract for the lead actor uh, or I need a contract for the director. I like to get involved in a much more organic way and understand the picture from the beginning to the end. Um, it makes the picture come out better. It makes me understand the production better. I learn more. And frankly, it's a whole lot more fun. Although I will say a picture came in to my office recently where they just want me to be the lawyer. And I was looking at the rest of the team and I said, but, but, but. And they said, nope, it's all set. And I said, okay, I'll be the lawyer. So I'm just going to sit back and wait for them to ask me to draw up contracts. And there's nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong with that either. But, you know, packaging is difficult. Um, I represent some casting directors and I find that they are probably the most important part of packaging a picture because some of them will actually bring directors to the to the fore some of them will bring writers some of them of course will bring actors but the whole package is what sells most people go to the movies not because of the writer and not because of the director except for maybe 15 directors who you could name instantly uh, they go because of the actors they want to see the actors so I mean you we might all of us might go to see a Quentin Tarantino movie if we like his stuff or a Martin Scorsese movie and wouldn't worry so much about the cast. On the other hand, uh you might go see a Bruce Willis movie and not really care who the director is. So it, it those that's kind of what you're thinking about. Uh but all you don't go because Edith Head is is designing the costumes. You go yeah. because, you go because the cast is there, the director is there. And also, uh, as well, it's like, do you find that when you are uh, in the EP position uh, there that you find that it actually uh, it actually becomes more or less of a challenge because you're working, because uh, being with the, is in the EP position, but also being the legal counsel as well on the production, do you find ever conflict with that? Uh, I don't find a conflict, actually, unless it's one of my clients who gets selected to be involved in the picture and that's a clear conflict um, and I have that going on right now in another property but uh, by and large it, you know we're all in it together we want to make the best possible movie sometimes I know people that they don't know and it's easier for me to call and say would you consider working on this picture than it is for them to call because they don't have a relationship as you said earlier it's all about relationships so the more relationships you have uh, the more likely it is um, that you're able to succeed. So it's important to build and maintain those relationships. And we're, uh, in, in terms of the relationships, sorry, one last final question I know I was saying before, but it's like in terms of the relationships, what do you find is the best one, at, uh, attending festivals or going to organized events or what is your easiest way of reaching out for people? Like which, uh, through social media, through a web, uh, like which ways do you find that are the most effective for people to be able to get their contacts or foot in the door, so to speak? You're asking to be able me? To speak to, well, yes, to be people. able to, uh, like, uh, oh, I'm talking about uh, what do you, uh, do you find for you as well? Is for your clients, for your clients. I write, uh, I speak often on panels, I attend a lot of festivals, I do a lot of networking, I also do a lot of social media stuff. So uh, I get, uh, it helps me develop a reputation, 
and that's kind of what I do. I don't know the answer that one is better than the other. I think they're all part of it. I write articles on all kinds of things. I speak on all kinds of panels, uh, and I try to do a good job when I do those things. I think it through, and I try to say what makes sense, and I do it in a very, very simple way, I hope, although my discussion on this show about tax credits used a lot of run-on sentences. Uh, I happen to think I can explain it very simply by and large, but anyway, I, all of that stuff matters is the answer. Absolutely, and it, actually the way that you described tax credits was absolutely wonderful because it really does bring it to the forefront of uh, the system itself and understanding it. It's like you did bring forth a very good understanding of the tax credit system. And also, uh, we wanted to take the time also to thank you very much and thank, uh, and Kente, do you have yeah. any uh, final ones? No, I just want to, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. I learned a lot, and um, I'm looking forward to just uh, what else that you, you know, you're going to um, do in the future, and and um, I, I really appreciate that you take your time out to, you know, talk to the public. And, and you know, because most people don't really know what, you know, what you guys do. I mean, they have an idea. They think they know. And I, it was so nice to hear you talk and shed some light. So I want to once again thank you. And if anybody wanted to uh, to know more about you, do you have a website or any social media at all? Oh, yeah. Um, my website is www mark m-a-r-c jacobson j-a-c-o-b-s-o-n dot com mark jacobson dot com my uh i have a facebook page is mark jacobson pc my twitter account is at mark jacobson pc i'm on linkedin um and I, that's about it all right um you can follow me at kente f how can they follow you grayson well you can reach me on linkedin bizipedia goodness facebook um gosh um also on sl uh, through uh, the uh, through superstar and rock against hunger which uh, is uh, doing great tonight they're doing the feed the babies for them just to uh, as a shout out for them and also goodness um as i said through various social uh, media as well, as not yet quite Twitter. I'm not a Twitter person yet. Still haven't learned uh, how to tweet or Instagram yet. But we'll uh, get to that. Um, otherwise, like I said, basically LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, through uh, via social medias like Bizipedia, uh, and you can also contact direct as well uh, through the company website, which is www.pastlivesproductionsinc.net. For what it's worth, I'm also on IMDb Slated and uh, Stage 32. Oh, very cool. You're also on Stage 32, yes. That's right. That's also how we uh, we know each other as well, through Stage 32. Okay, yeah. So, there you have it. Uh, All right. And Kinte? All right, so, uh, you know, join us once again next week. Um, same time, Monday, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 Eastern. And um, also on Wednesday, we have our Podcasters Illuminati show, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 Eastern as well. So, guys, make sure you check that out. We're going to be talking with uh, some podcasters about 
how um, how they got started and uh, just the different things with podcasts. So that should be a lot of fun. And uh, we'll see you next time right here on IndieRadio.org. Have a great evening, all.